Judy. Well, I'm really excited to introduce our speaker this afternoon. Laurie Nolan Kelly has been with us since 2016 um, and is one of our clinical nurse leaders. She oversees care of patients in trauma and orthopedics. She's certified in trauma as, and is certified in emergency nursing as well. And her role is, one, uh, is a growing role here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and in, in her particular role, she is an advanced practice generalist responsible for the development, institution, and evaluation of interprofessional care, in, in her case, of trauma and orthopedic patient populations. And you'll know that we, have, we will have growing numbers of clinical nurse leaders uh, here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, um, as we know that the literature shows that um, we can see improvements in patient care when a clinical nurse leader is involved in that care. Uh, Laurie received her Master of Science in Nursing from Sacred Heart University in Fairfield, Connecticut, and soon will receive her Doctor of Nursing Practice um, from uh, Fairfield University. And I think you said 28 days she'll, she'll be done. <laughs> so not, she's not counting or anything. Um, we're happy to learn from her and her research today. She has published uh, very recently in the Journal of Emergency Nursing, uh, Taking Aim at an Epidemic, Firearms Injury Prevention uh, by Emergency Nurses. And she's also clinical content editor in the Emergency Nurse Core Curriculum, uh, 7th edition, published through Elsevier. She's a member of Sigma Theta Tau International Honor Society of Nursing, and for those of you who are interested, we have recently been approved to hold our own chapter meetings here in uh, collaboration with Colby Sawyer College. So any of you who are interested in Sigma Theta Tau, I think we can both attest to the fact that it's a wonderful organization and just see me after and I can give you more information about that. So again, to learn more about Lori's uh, research, please join me in welcoming her this afternoon. Okay, if I'm walking, you can do all right? No? Turn that. Looks better? Not really. Oh, I know how annoying that is, so let me see if I can. Nope. How's that? Good? Okay. So thank you. Um, when Dr. Coffey asked me to speak, it was about doing research and how research that nurses do ends up becoming evidence-based practice. And I agreed to present a concept of nursing research based on the research that I myself have been doing for quite some time. And um, for starters, I have no conflicts. I'm not uh, selling anything or buying anything. Um, so we'll just kind of go forward from there. We'll, I'm going to use, discuss doing research, conducting scientific research for nursing, and then what that means to us as caregivers. So we have objectives. There we go. Um, the objectives are to identify what's driving translational research, um, understand what that means, um, what conducting research means to applying it to evidence-based practice, and then talk about what we as bedside nurses can do to pull all that together. And before I do that, I am going to ask a couple questions. So everybody has a, a clicker? I'll tell you at the end why I'm asking. Um, so just, and this is a very personal, this is an opinion question. 
Um, considering your own, considering firearms in the United States, how much of a problem do you think currently exists? Polling. I'm not sure I can. There we go. So some people think it's a big problem, um, kind of spread out a little bit, no problem at all, even on a few of those. But here's the next question. Considering your own personal practice, your practice, how much of, an, how much of a concern is firearms injury? very little problem, but let me tell you how I got involved in all of this. I'm going to take this one step forward. There we go. This is one of my favorite screens. I use it all the time um, because it talks about translating what we look up. When you look up an article, when you learn something new, when you read an article, when you do some research of your own, how does that impact the way you actually deliver your knowledge to your patients? So we start up at the top with basic scientific discovery. And we think, all right, so who cares? What does that mean to people in general? What does it mean to my patients? What does it mean to my practice? And what does that mean to the whole population that we serve? So the um, translational research is a strategic goal for both the National Academies of uh, Medicine and the National Institutes of Health for the next 2016 to 2020. So I'm going to come back to this because it does tie it all together. What the um, different um, research organizations like the NIH were finding was that we had people doing research over here, and more people doing research over here, and they're doing drug research, and they're doing interventional research, and it's never getting to the patients. So the reason this is a strategic goal is because we want to get our knowledge, our learning, out to where it's going to make a difference in the people we take care of. So this fabulously confusing um, diagram is the Iowa model um, for evidence-based practice that Dartmouth-Hitchcock has adopted as the nurse model for nursing research. There's a lot going on here, um, and I'm going to make it, I think, easier, because this is where we start. Um, we have the Iowa model starts with identifying triggers for what we might investigate. So knowledge-based focus, knowledge up here, we've got knowledge-focused triggers and problem-focused. And sometimes it can be both. Sometimes it can be either. Sometimes, and over here on the side, it says consider some other triggers. So for me, the whole firearms question came from personal experience. And sometimes we, say, we see something, we say something, what do we know about it, and we look it up. Well, I had a couple of experiences. I'm an emergency nurse by training. Um, things happened very close, close together time-wise in the last hospital that I was working in. One is we had an active shooter event in our emergency department, which we're all now training for, right? We do our e-learning. But one thing that emergency nurses, and probably many of us do, how many have ever stopped on the side of the road when they see an accident? It's what we do. Um, we had someone coming into the emergency department, big double doors open, gunfire, person on the ground bleeding, 
And we did what we do. We all run in, pick them up, get Gordon out of the room, get them in the trauma bay, and take care of them. So it's the next day that we all start doing this and say, what about, what about my husband? What about my kids? Well, how's, what was I doing to run into the line of fire? So that was, that was a big event for me. Um, and shortly thereafter, we had a couple patients, totally unrelated, who got upstairs to the inpatient units, and they had weapons, loaded guns, in their personal belongings. The inpatient nurses go crazy. What's going on down there in the ED? And it becomes the responsibility of the emergency department nurse to search the belongings of everyone who's admitted. Right? So we have you in the emergency department for hours. We finally decide you're going to stay overnight. And before we send you upstairs, do you mind if I go through your belongings and make sure you don't have any knives, guns, or explosives? And that, okay, most of the time I would say that to a patient. I'm like, sure, go ahead and look. But my feeling is, hey, what about me? It's okay for the guns to come in, but they shouldn't go upstairs. Not that I have a problem with inpatient nurses. <laughs> um, so anyway, that was, that was kind of what triggered my own question. Um, and this is where I said, but is there a problem? So I start with identifying what are my problems, or is there one? So is there a problem? Well, we all have different opinions about that. Is it my problem? I felt it was. Is there something I can do about it? Eh, maybe, maybe not. So from there, I've got to go also to the other side of that diagram, which is um, knowledge-based trainers. Is healthcare teaching a nursing responsibility? Yeah. Is injury prevention part of good nursing care? Yeah. And what's an environment of health and safety? We keep saying we're building these safe environments. How do we do that? And that's kind of where I got into this. So now we're a little bit further down. And an interesting thing about this model is the, tri the diamond shape. Those are decision points. And you can get to, I have a great idea. Something's important to me. I want to look into it. One of these really key decision points, right in the middle there, is this, an, is this a priority for the organization? And that can be a big stumbling block when you're trying to launch a research project. Because if nobody around you cares, it's really hard to get anything done. In fact, if people are dismissive of you, or then, even worse, you start to be a troublemaker, then they're really not, you're not going to get some, any support on it. So for me, especially coming here, really easy when it's right there in the, in the hospital's mission statement. Imagine a health system that focuses on health, not just health care. That was it. I was cool coming here because I can do this work. It's going to be supported. Um, and it has been. So very often our next step, once we feel we have a question, have an issue, something we're looking into, we build a question. Our uh, PICO question, population intervention, compare, and outcome. Sometimes the question just writes itself. So you have a population of hospitalized patients. Um, the intervention, answer the call bell, compared to letting people sit and wait. What's the outcome on, on patient satisfaction? So that's a very straightforward, very simple question. A hospitalized patient, does answering the call bell compared to not make patients happier? or have better outcomes or any other. And 
that, that's a gimme. For me, I really struggled with finding a question that was clearly going to define, what am I trying to do here? What am I researching? What am I hoping to learn or hoping to accomplish? So my next step is a little further down here. I've got to write up here on this next triangle, is there sufficient research? And is there, is there data out there? Is there information? Is there something there? Or do I have to start doing my own original research? And I'll make a note here about you have to really care about it. If you're going to put the amount of time and energy into researching and doing an advanced degree and writing and writing and writing and writing, don't pick some subject because somebody else thought it was a good idea. You have to really be passionate about it or you won't ever have the, you just won't get through it. It becomes a burden as opposed to something that's constantly evolving. And along with that then goes the next, a little further down that diagram, building a team. The team doesn't have to be a team of researchers. This can be your spouse, your kids, your mother, so other people that you can bounce an idea off of. A colleague who can say, Lori, you are way down the road and no, reel it back in. Or that's really interesting. Or the more you talk about it, people are saying, I saw this article, I read about this. And then, now you have a team. Sometimes you have, we see a lot of green belt and yellow belt projects, and you have a working team here. But sometimes it's just a matter of having somebody else that you can bounce those ideas off of. Because you need to find out, not just is there research, but is there good quality research. And I put a note here about the Dickey Amendment, because that applied specifically to me. Um, in, the, in 1996, with an act of Congress, there was an amendment on one of the big um, funding bills that said that no federal money could be used in research that would promote gun control, which means all the grant money that the National Institutes of Health and the Academy of Medicine and all sorts of other research organizations might have had everybody's very sticky about whether they will give anyone any money to investigate and to study gun violence because we know where it's going to lead and it's going to lead to suggestions on gun control. So we have this big lobby to allow everybody free access to weapons and let's not give too much money to proving reasons we can't. And that goes on now. 20 years, there's been a lot of noise from um, professional organizations saying it's time to back off the Dickey Amendment. But I needed to know that what I was reading in the papers, what I was getting from the news, and what I was able to pull from um, government databases wasn't always as advanced research as we might find on other subjects, on, um, on a viral infection, on a cancer, on a medication. Okay. So when we talk about what is out there and what you can find and what you can so we've got to something. It's two minutes. Got some loose day from the radio man. Spoke the word somber and softly as again the frost is still. And the sky opened up and made my way fill up my coffee cup. 
Today's the day that Johnny met you. He waited a while. He knew that it would. He was gonna hang around here for as long as good days went by. And I was out of pace. He was never sure just how long he would last. But there's not much love in a lonely room. This day that jumped at you. So that's um, pretty dramatic. Um, Sandy Hook is, was one of those days. It was one of the most horrible things that uh, any of us, and any of us who have children, any of us who ever went to school, no kids go to school, it's, it's a horrible thing. The Sandy Hook Promise Organization has done a wonderful job of getting all sorts of attention to um, firearms, injury, firearms safety. But the question then is, how good is that evidence? I'm getting, hold on, I'm in the wrong mode here, right? Ah. <coughs> Sorry about that. Okay, so we've got all of these organizations that are publishing information, and some have a real agenda. Um, some of these are, some of these are articles that are in peer-reviewed um, publications, and they're really solid evidence. And others are campaigns with a political agenda. So there's a lot of sifting that had to go through that, and a lot of um, information that I had to check and double check and go back to original sources, because we all know we can lie with statistics. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Um, but along the way, we had everything from systematic reviews of interventions to prevent violence, all the way down here to some expert opinion and some not-so-expert opinion. So there was another, there were more layers of this. Um, what was interesting is my original investigation was I don't want guns coming into the hospital at all. And the number of people I spoke with about, the, when I did say I want to go through your bags before you go upstairs, well, I carry my gun everywhere. What, why? What's going on? And I had a man tell me once, 
if you're in the mall with your kids at the food court and someone opens fire, you want me to have my gun because I'm a really good shot. I'm like, okay, it makes, I don't like it, but I can at least understand that. Um, but there, there's more to it than that when we get into a healthcare environment. This is where I am now. I'm evaluating the quality of care and new knowledge. And what are we finding out? One of the studies I did was I, I gathered the opinions of emergency department, emergency department nurses before and after there was signage outlining, making public statement of no weapons allowed. And initially, asking the question, are you safe, do you feel safer? Initially, the nurses said they didn't like the idea that we were raising the subject. Whereas three months, six months later, many felt that the organization was more supportive of their safe practice environment. So we went dramatically in the other direction. And um, after that, I'll show you some of the signage that um, went in at all the Yale New Haven properties in response to that, was that the nurses felt that they were being looked out for, that the organization was more concerned about their safety by, um, by posting that. So we're talking here about, we're still up here on the T0, by the way. I'm not going to drag on for all the rest of it that much. But we start, I have my, I have my um, basic discovery. And here's what I'm finding out along the way. That, in fact, a lot of what's in the press can be verified. Um, the media outlets are reporting and that there are, there's this dramatic increase in gun ownership. Um, is that a worry? I don't know. What, what happens when so many more people have guns? Well, what happens is more people get shot. So, um, and a note here about, um, these are age-adjusted rates. Anytime you're doing any research that has to do with populations, you want to balance that population so that you get, you can compare apples to apples. So you'll see that notation in a couple of my slides that I have age-adjusted rates. But we're seeing something happen here in the last few years with that increased number of guns owned is we're seeing more people getting hurt by them. So the question that comes next is, so what does that mean to people in general? 72,000, actually we, we topped that in 2016. Um, I don't have the year, the year end numbers aren't out yet, but I will tell you that they were well up, they were well past the 72,000 when I got the third quarter numbers. Um, so we have these 72,000 plus injuries and 32,000 plus deaths in 2014. Um, and the cost of treating these people, what's it cost? Well, if you take the $40 billion each per year that is spent on the Department of Homeland Security or the National Institutes of Health overall, that's what we're spending on people who are injured by firearms. Putting that in this perspective, okay? So over here, we've got Apple's revenue, all of Medicaid, and the total cost. Now, remember I said something about lying with statistics? This is not just medical cost. This is lost, um, lost earnings, loss of life through some of the uh, calculations. What is a, how many dollars is a life worth? Um, plus all of the rehab, and 
I mean, there's a, that's a pretty dramatic number. So all of us who are paying attention to where we're spending our healthcare dollars, you can't ignore this. Um, so my next question is, what does this have to do with the patients that I see? This 72,000 or an age-adjusted rate of 22, um, 22 people for every 100,000 are getting shot. That's a lot of people. But still, it's not something I'm related to, right? It's a great big number. It means nothing to me. How about this? Living in America now, estimated 4.5 million women report that they have been threatened with a gun by an intimate partner. And another million have been shot or shot at. How many of us care for women? OK. Um, one step further. How about kids? Three times as many Americans were shot by toddlers aged three and under than by terrorists in 2015. And again, 2016 numbers are coming in about the same. So where are we going here? This is including, this is taking children aged three and under and including Americans who were shot in the Paris attacks. It's the only way we can bump up the number of terrorist injuries in 2015. And we still have three times as many toddlers. More toddlers died of gunshot in the United States than did law enforcement officers in the line of duty. So how many of us take care of kids? Now we've got our patients, right? We've got our, the women we care for, the children we care for, And how about those people who are dying? 32,000 people annually dying of gunshot wounds. But what's really interesting here is where is the press on this? The press is talking about people who go into movie theaters and, and um, schools and um, nightclubs and open fire. But that's not where the big deaths are coming from. We're still talking about the mental health issue of the people who go in and do these horrible things. But how about this? Year after year, nearly two-thirds of the firearms deaths are suicides. So now it's a health issue, right? 85% in Vermont, 89% in New Hampshire. So the good news is you are unlikely to be shot to death in New Hampshire. The bad news is if you are, it's probably because you shot yourself. So now we're bringing this back around. This is not a legal question anymore. This is an epidemiology question. And it's absolutely a healthcare question. So how does that translate to practice? Where do we go now? We're coming around that circle. What are we going to do to bring this into our own practice? We know that all of these things were driven by the Surgeon General or by Mothers Against Drunk Driving or um, public and health, uh, health organizations working together. Public government, government and communities and healthcare providers all working together. So how about if we go one step further on who's getting shot and surviving? If you are treated in an emergency room for a gunshot wound, your chances of being shot again go up dramatically. So do your risk of these other things, becoming unemployed, being arrested for a violent crime, or becoming a murder victim yourself. And we know, is that, I said I missed one, no, here it is. So there are hospitals in inner cities 
that have hospital-based interventions. When you come in with a gunshot wound, there's a program. And we start trying to get to people and finding out what caused you to be shot? What caused you to be in that environment? And this is, again, bringing home to all of us the fact that this is a healthcare issue. So you still have to have the legal argument, right? Especially now in New Hampshire where you don't need a permit. You can carry anywhere at any time. Um, there are federal laws. And the federal law in, uh, has made a blanket statement of places where you cannot have your weapon. Um, courthouses and jails, um, elementary schools. Now, in New Hampshire, I had to put a note here, because New Hampshire says that only students can't bring guns to school. <coughs> Most towns, I have not found a town that's saying that teachers and parents can bring their guns to school, but I haven't found consistently that they're outlawed in every town in New Hampshire. Most, I would say, I've only found one so far that doesn't address it. But um, I, I take that conversation um, one step further. I did have an opportunity to talk to um, Senator Chris Murphy in Connecticut, who's a great proponent of gun, of gun control, and has filibustered and made lots of noise in, in Washington. And I started a conversation with him in his office uh, with ground rules for, for our conversation. Three ground rules. We both keep our clothes on. We both stay awake the whole time I'm here. And nobody uses any mind-altering drugs. <laughs> right? OK. So I, I have to tell you, if you ever want to get somebody's attention, start with, let's keep our clothes on. It, it works. Um, so I said, good, we're good here. But when you come into my office, first thing I'm going to do is have you take your clothes off. Second thing I'm going to do is I'm going to really hope at some point you go to sleep. And somewhere along the way, I will likely give you medication that will alter your reflexes, your ability to make good judgments. And yet, there's no law that says you can't bring your gun into my office. But I'm not allowed to bring my gun into yours, so what do you think, Senator? OK, so anyway, it was a ploy. I think it worked. We'll see. <laughs> um, anyway. Um, this is, uh, again, talking about the, I, I think I already talked about this, the hospital-based programs that intervene at the point of injury. But I think that there's more we can do here. Um, starting by keeping the weapons out of the hospitals. Um, educating at the caregiver level. That's, that's us, that's this now. Um, but also, if we make the firearms discussion, part of our conversation, part of our assessment, right? We ask all these questions. Do you smoke? Do you drink? Do you wear your seatbelt? Do you wear a helmet? Um, do you feel safe at work and at home? When we have people who say, eh, do we ask them, are, are there weapons in your house? When somebody says, we ask routinely, are you a danger? Do you ever have thoughts about hurting yourself? But then do we say, but do you have access to guns? And we can do this if, without, this is, this is it. Are there guns in your house? We ask, our, ask the kids, how about asking the moms? If the guns in your house, do they have a lock on them that's child-proof? My kid doesn't touch it. My kids know not to touch it. You know, throw the numbers at them. Kids aren't supposed to touch it, but they do. Um, 
So I have no, I'm not suggesting that we should outlaw weapons in people's homes. I'm saying, don't bring them in a place where you can't keep an eye on them. And if you leave them home, don't let your kids get them. And if you're suicidal, put it someplace else until you feel better. But there are, there are ways that we as caregivers, as healthcare providers, can make those, can have those conversations. Um, so we come back to making this about being healthcare driven. So this, I talked about this before. This is something, um, over here, Mayo has this eye level on all of the um, doorways, in and out of all their properties. Um, absolutely, no weapons. This one is uh, uh, now at, at the entrances of all the Yale and Hayden properties, and that's across the whole state of Connecticut. And I think that, um, as I said, the response to this was initially kind of, do we really have to have that? Um, it's like, you know, you can tell a lot about a place by what the signs say, when it says no shirt, no shoes, you know it's not a five-star restaurant, um, no shirt. But if you have to post this, does, what does it say? Is this an unsafe environment? And we don't want to send a message that this is an unsafe environment. But we do want to send a message that this is something we want to talk about. And how do we then translate to that? Now we're coming all the way around to our population here. It's my, I'm referring to this work now at this point as a campaign. Um, this I think is every, as often as we say, do you smoke? Do you drink? Are there weapons in your home? And are they kept um, stored securely? And also, um, I don't think I think that hospitals and psychiatric facilities should be kind of a, a gimme, right? It's like out of here. So um, this is this is what we come back to. My original um, teaching points was we want to make this a healthcare discussion. We want to do this in a weapons-free environment. We want to have these conversations in a place where there aren't weapons. And then um, we ask you to do all of this, to support all of this, um, to talk to your patients, talk to your families, talk to your friends about keeping our environment safe. Now, I have to put a caveat on this next screen because the marketing people are going to have my head. We've talked about it with um, security. Uh, hold on. Up one. The colors are wrong. This is a mock-up. Um, it's not the real dart. It's not the dart and green. But something along these lines is coming soon to a hospital near you. Um, and no more the low white on white down here on the floor. But we are going with this. Let's let's keep the whole community safe. And also because I got ahead of myself there. Here's where we are now. Um, Disseminating results, but also welcome to my ongoing research because there's a reason I have you clicking those things. Um, I want to find out, not just today, but somewhere down the road, whether you've had these conversations. Um, so I'm going to ask the same questions that we asked before, but I would also ask you to let me know what you hear back from patients who are so used to hearing the, some of those questions. Um, but when you add when you add those on, what do people say? What's the reaction? And do people support making this a health care provider discussion, or whether people get offended or push back or object, or whether it turns into a legal you can't take my gun away kind of conversation? 
Okay, so I'm going to ask you again. Um, now, how much of a problem do you think there is? So as a result of this, are changes going to be made into the assessments in EDH so that these questions are more universally asked? I promise it's not a plan. <laughs> <laughs> that would be, that would be, yeah I, yeah, I would be absolutely thrilled with that. That I think is a very worthwhile thing to, to and that's why I'm kind of counting on the feedback from all of you on what, what do people say? Because I really... When I first started having this conversation with people, I didn't expect anyone to say, yeah, well, mind your own business. It, it didn't make sense to me, but I did get a little of that. So I would like to at least have some feedback and 
um, ideally have people say, yeah. good, yeah, we should be doing that. Or yeah. from places who already implemented this, has there been a kind of post-study done that it created a negative or positive <laughs> effects? The, um, what we have seen is that in the pediatric, in the children's hospital at Yale, which is a separate facility and has a separate ED, after it was posted, they had so much pushback that they put a metal detector at the main entrance to the ED. And now they have someone who stops anyone coming in the foot. And again, that's downtown New Haven in a not very nice neighborhood where um, that became an issue. Um, other than that, what I was measuring was perceptions, nurses' perceptions of safety, nurses' perceptions of the organization's concern for their safety. Um, you know, I think I skipped over one. What, there was, did I talk about hospital-based shootings? I didn't talk about that, did I? I must have skipped a slide in there, or two. So there's been a dramatic increase in the number of shootings that are happening on hospital properties. We went from four or five a year for the 2000 years, and since 2011, we're up at the 16 or 17 events per year nationally. And most of those are happening in emergency departments, that more people are armed and more people are coming into hospitals, um, and some of them are driven by, uh, they're angry or frustrated, and we have murder-suicide pacts, and, um, you, you won't let grandma go, I'll make sure grandma goes. Or I, she promised me I wouldn't let her suffer, and those kinds of things. Or you should have saved my husband, wife, daughter. Um, and there are people who are coming in and taking pot shots, revenge shots, at, um, at healthcare providers, but also euthanizing family members. So there's more and more of it. So, you know, we're not a big city, but we do have a lot of people are armed around yes. here uh, due to our rural area. Do you have any scripting or anything for security officers and nurses who no doubt will be confronted with people who feel very unsafe when they do not have their guns? Yes, and um, there are a couple of things um, that I, I'm, I'm happy to share, but along the lines of just asking the question and then doing doing some of the teaching that's very straightforward. You don't really want to have be the person who's five-year-old, chapter three-year-old, or vice versa. Um, but also, the New Hampshire um, Gun Safety Coalition, which is um, very well known around the country, uh, this was an organization of gun shop owners who had a couple of events where someone came in, bought a gun, went out, and shot himself. And the gun shop owners were so concerned over this that they, with the help of some health, uh, mental health care providers, developed a training course for people who sell guns to look for a few triggers that would say, you know what, tell them to come back tomorrow. Um, and uh, you know, I, I joked about it, if you come in and say, I need a gun, that's probably not somebody you want to sell them the gun and the ammunition and say, off you go. But there are other more subtle signs. And while we don't expect gun shop owners to be psychiatrists, there are some things that can be pretty glaring. The other thing is that those same shops have offered to store a weapon for someone who's in crisis. And that could be the wife of the person who's having a tough go, or it could be the couple who are going, know that they're escalating, and one of them has the forethought, forethought to say, let's just keep it out of the house. 
You don't want to take it to the police department because you don't want to come up on their radar. Where, where do you go? Um, and the gun shops in New Hampshire will store those for you. Most gun clubs will do that, whether you're a member or not. You can store your gun and your ammunition during a crisis period. Or while your grandchildren visit. So those things, those, op those options and opportunities are out there. So what are, um, taking what you've learned here locally by synthesizing the national research, what can go back um, um, into the broader knowledge base in order to help um, healthcare facilities who are located within municipalities or states that do not allow this kind of research? Um, the, it's not, and again, it's a very fine line, the, you cannot have federal funding for research that is intended or would lead to gun control. That's a big gray area because it's not just what you are allowed to spend money on, it's what you might get money to research. And there's too many people holding back on that. But there's a lot of private money um, that comes from the Brady Campaign or the Sandy, uh, Sandy Hook Group or a number of others. Um, you know, what I see coming down the road is JCO now requires that hospitals have an active shooter plan. So we all know what to do if we hear code silver, right? We have our steps and at some point we should be able to take all of that and say, hello federal government, don't you think along with the courthouse and the jail, put the hospital and the site facilities there as just no guns here. So I'd like to think that that's what's coming and that there will be a little more cooperation between healthcare and, and legislative bodies. So last year I attended the uh, National Safety Patient Better, uh, Foundation uh, annual meeting and the Joint Commission was speaking about gun violence and hospital violence and about what they were soliciting opinions of those in the audience but also were sharing what they have learned as best practices. And the other point that they made is their uh, home office is in Chicago. So the gun violence is right at their doorstep. Right there, yeah. There's, um, no, there's, there's no denying that. Um, and the fact that it's such a public conversation right now, one of the things um, that I referred to, and again, I guess I was flipping the slide. You're a rather intimidating group. <laughs> 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 One of the things that, uh, now, now I've lost that, that train of thought. Um, Chicago. Sorry? Chicago. Chicago. Oh, yeah, see, yeah. Some of the things that we can do and what it costs to do them. This is what we call low-hanging fruit. It's not expensive to put those signs up, and it's not expensive to ask those questions. So. Um, going back to what Dr. Coffey had asked me to talk about in terms of research, along the way with all of this, I still have to go through my institutional review boards and say that I'm going to convince you or educate you um, that I'm going to present this information in an educational format in hopes that it will change the way you practice. There is no human at risk. There is no threat here. There's no downside to asking the questions. Um, the only thing that came up at one point with pediatricians was if I ask those questions and the family says, 
now there's a loaded gun, and yeah, I keep one next to the front door, I keep one under the front seat of the car, and I keep one. What's the, what, is, what do I, as a mandated reporter, have to do with that information? So if you have something like that come up, I would recommend that if you check the yes box, yes, I'm a danger to myself, yes, I have access to firearms, um, I would at somewhere in your charting also note that you counseled against that and offered suggestions on where the weapons could be during a crisis period. Hi, this was great. I just have a suggestion. Um, the DH policy is for tobacco overall, so maybe just thinking of that first poster, and I love that, with the cigarette and the gun and the knife and the um, anyway, maybe just considering putting the e-cigarette up there, because we have all sorts of people wandering, wandering around with those, and maybe a little thing of skull, just because all the tobacco products are right. Both. Okay. Yeah, I mean that's that's a very good point to think about. Oh, very instead of smoking, point. say use of tobacco products. Tobacco. So we've had even employees near oxygen vaping. Mm -hmm. Which, yeah, not too bright, but yeah, it might be. Kind of they had some of this middle one, um, you know, basically you want to get your, your point across without jumping it up too much. Yeah, yeah. But I have seen those with the cannabis leaf, but apparently people don't know what that is. Okay. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we don't, don't want to make signs for something that may actually. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.